Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, public health for the public. My name is Dr. Philip Chan from the Rhode Island Department of Health. We've been hearing a lot lately about weather in the news, floods, hurricanes, and even tornadoes. Well, today we'll be talking about climate change as it relates both to environmental and public health. Is climate change responsible for some of the unusual weather we've been seeing? How does it directly impact public health? And are there positive steps we can take to reduce those impacts here in the ocean state? Our guests today are experts on the subject of climate change. Dr. Garab Basu is a director of education and policy at the Harvard School of Public Health. His work focuses on the intersection of climate change, global health equity, human rights, medical education, and public policy. We're also joined by Rachel Calabro, who's an environmental scientist and climate policy specialist right here in Rhode Island with the Department of Environmental Management. In her role, she helps with the state's Executive Climate Change Coordinating Council and helps develop plans and policies to reduce greenhouse gas pollution. She formerly served as director of the Rhode Island Climate and Health Program here at the Rhode Island Department of Health. Thank you both so much for joining us. Let's get started and maybe Dr. Basu, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do, and then we'll we'll go to Rachel here. Sure. Um, so I'm a primary care doctor. I practice in Community Health Center up here. And I'm really interested in the role of education and bringing people together to talk about these big issues. I think this can feel daunting and overwhelming. Uh, my work right now is focused on climate change, on the impacts on our patients and on public health. And uh, my background, again, is in global health and human rights and health equity. So as a primary care doctor, I've experienced you know these big structural things impacting my patients and had kind of my light bulb moment in 2018 with the UN IPCC report. And that report just made me realize that climate change impacts all the things I care about and how I take care of my patients and how I do my public health work. And so we're we're involved in teaching the medical students at Harvard Med School and now at uh, Harvard School of Public Health as well on how they can get involved and take action. Thank you so much for joining us. Rachel, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Rachel Calabro. I'm from the Department of Environmental Management. I'm a environmental scientist and a policy analyst here. I have a background in coastal geology and, and coastal management. I was the Narragansett Bay Riverkeeper at Save the Bay quite a while. And I am also very interested in more of the community aspect of what's happening with climate change in Rhode Island in terms of community engagement and health equity and, and the social determinants of health and, and trying to figure out how in Rhode Island we can help communities really adjust and prepare for climate change, as well as using some of our techniques to become more resilient as a state. So thank you so much for joining us. You know, I'm going to admittedly, I'm uh, Dr. Pursue, we've never met before, but I'm an adult infectious diseases physician, but I don't know much about climate change. So I'm very interested today about the conversation, and it's it's great. We have both the local and the global perspective mm -hmm. here. So let's dive right in. Dr. Pursuit, when we talk about climate change, I think a lot of folks think about that as warmer weather, uh, et cetera. But when we talk about climate change, how should we think about that? Is it just warmer weather? Well, the first thing I think about is health, you know, and I think that we need to bring health to the center of the conversation because it it makes it really human. It makes it very proximal to us and it can translate it into terms that that matter for all of us. And that's important because it helps us take action. So I'll, I'll just briefly say here, I think of climate change as impacting health through kind of these eight mechanisms, uh, climate change and burning fossil fuels, I'll say. So infectious diseases, I'll start <laughs> with that one for you. The impacts on food security, water scarcity, um, the impacts on uh, extreme weather slash natural disasters, 
of course, heat, which is a big bucket of issues, air pollution, mental health, and forced migration. So climate change is caused by human-made emissions that has caused a kind of insulation in our, our climate system so that solar rays and infrared are not bouncing out of the atmosphere in the way that they used to. They get trapped. They're heat-trapping gases, and that's causing a warming phenomenon that is well-established in the science throughout post-industrial era, especially. So Rachel, let me ask you this. Dr. Basu just talked about kind of the greenhouse gases and I think some of the, the carbon dioxide emissions, right, being trapped and leading to warmer weather. When we talk about climate change, is it just these emissions that are leading to warmer weather? Is it, does it relate to pollution? Do we worry about like plastics in the ocean? Does that contribute to climate change at all? Or is it the emissions that are kind of leading to these weather changes? Well, we're really concerned about primarily the greenhouse gases that are creating that heat trapping blanket um, that Dr. Basut mentioned. And so the long-term trends in climate are what we're really looking at. And there's a difference between weather, which is a short-term phenomenon, and then a longer-term climate trend. And we, for climate, we're really looking at data longer than 30 years or 50 years. And so over those long terms, lots of things are changing in the atmosphere and in the oceans and in all the different spheres. So we look not just at the atmosphere, but we're looking at the ocean, the moisture content of the air and things like that. Thank you. And Dr. Pursuit, let me go back to you. You touched on this as well uh, about this being evidence-based, uh, but I feel like even in the last couple months here in my networks that I've talked to people who don't believe in climate change that think that this just may be a periodic trend in the weather of the world. Talk to us about the science behind climate change. Is this controversial? Is this proven without a doubt? How do we know that these longer term trends are actually occurring? How do you think about it? This is proven science. And it's the UN IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So what bodies like the UN and other you know, entities have done is really bring the best climate scientists around the world together to investigate every element of this and to model, you know, a lot of the ways they model is they say, well, let's make sure it's not this phenomenon, like volcanoes can impact the warming of the planet. How do we know it's not that? How do we not know it's this? And it, you know, to be honest with you, Dr. Chen, it's it's kind of just pastime to, you know, I don't even really love talking about is it real or not, because it is happening, it is here, it's caused by humans, and we have a lot we can do about it. And I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the surveys I see, and certainly there are slices of society that are kind of denying climate change, but overwhelmingly people understand that climate change is real and that it's impacting their lives. And, you know, this summer was a pretty harsh one where we saw it very firsthand. So I, I think it's it's very true that we come across this conversation and I have those conversations with care and I'm very curious. I want to meet people and and talk. You know, as a primary care doctor, that's my job to explain science. Certainly there was a lot of that in COVID as well. So I, I certainly think that's important for us to do. But it's important for us to understand that regularly more than 75% of people are you know, not just believing in climate change, but really concerned about it and wanting to do something about it. And let's talk about some of the weather this summer. I feel like uh, here in Rhode Island, I mean, I've lived here for almost 25 years. I grew up uh, in New Hampshire, Vermont, you know, snow during the winters, you know, blizzards. But I feel like even just summer, you know, we were having flooding. Uh, we're having, you know, there's a hurricane on its way. You know, uh, tornadoes have been touching down. I mean, Rachel, let me ask you this. Are these 
weather events that we're seeing, I mean, are, are these due to climate change? Are all of them due to climate change? What are your thoughts there? Well, that question has actually brought about a whole new section of science, which is called attribution science. And there are now um, climate modelers who look specifically at attribution of an event and how what percentage of that event is due to climate change. So you can go back and you can look at these long-term climate trends that I mentioned and see what the probability is of, of a given weather event happening. And then you can look with um, a model, you can see how much extra energy we've added to the atmosphere, and you can see how much more likely an event would be because we've added that extra energy to the atmosphere. And so really what climate change is doing is it's making an, an extreme event more likely. And so that the storms that we're getting, because the atmosphere is warmer, it holds more moisture, those storms are getting larger, and the dumps of rain that we're getting are larger in proportion. And so that can be directly attributed to climate change. And even lawyers are using this to really sort of pinpoint and, and decide who's responsible. And so some countries have sued oil companies, let's say, and based on this attribution science. And so for us here in Rhode Island, our long-term trend is that we're getting more and more precipitation. So our rain events are happening with greater frequency, but they're also getting larger. So the number of storms that are above two inches um, is growing. And then we have droughts in between that because the, the rain just dumps and then it stops raining. And then it's, you know, things are changing. So we can't really look at the past to predict what's going to happen in the future anymore. What about the tornadoes, Rachel? There's a couple of things in life that really scare me. And uh, one reason why I've loved to live in New England, you know, we don't have a lot of earthquakes uh, and theoretically we don't have a lot of tornadoes. I mean, are the tornadoes mm -hmm. a result of climate change? Well, what's happening here in New England is that we're moving into more of a, a mid-Atlantic type of weather system. And so our weather is more like Virginia now, and it's going to be more and more. And so we're moving into Tornado Alley, I guess. I mean, don't know how else to, to say. I mean, it's very rare that we would get a tornado in, in Rhode Island. And so this might just be a, a rare event. Um, we'll see you know, in, in the future years, how many of these storms really contain that amount of energy. I think it's really due to the amount of energy in each particular storm cell. And we're seeing that there's more moisture and more energy within each of these storm cells now. One sort of theme that I've heard you both talk about is kind of the patterns and the trends over time. And and some of climate change, certainly looking at the data, is really looking at these over time. Dr. Brissot, let me ask you this. As a primary care physician, talk to us a little bit about the impacts on health in general. I think one thing that comes to mind, of course, are things like asthma. You know, I do feel like we see a lot more asthma, especially in kids nowadays. Uh, but talk to us about how the warmer weather potentially or just climate change in general can affect health and human disease and, and what we see as primary care physicians. Yeah, I, you know, I'll kind of go back to my kind of eight points of how climate impacts health. I won't go through all of them, but you know, I think here in New England, it's New England is the fastest warming quadrant of the United States. We're not exactly sure why we have warmed faster than the rest of the country and actually much of the world, but that is true. And you know, Rhode Island and Massachusetts are both right in the middle of that. So the first thing I think about, and you know, the one we keep seeing, the one that's impacting us, I think, and people see kind of with their own eyes, is are these heat waves? You know, and 
you know, this past summer was a really hard one because we had heat waves and El Nino on top of it. So while, you know, much of the heat wave phenomena was extraordinary in, in the South, you know, Texas and elsewhere are still struggling with triple digit um, heat waves. You know, heat is a good place to start. You know, heat impacts, uh, increases the rates of heart attacks and strokes, has impacts on obstetrical outcomes like low birth weight or premature labor. You know, things that are really important and interesting is that heat also increases things like gun violence. Good studies have shown that on very hot days, there's more gun violence. It worsens our sleep. It impacts our mental health. There's uh, studies showing that there's increased utilization in ED mental health services for anxiety, depression, um, schizophrenia, substance use disorder, suicidality. So, you know, I really think about these health equity structures, um, the ways in which, um, you know, issues like structural racism have played out and these heat phenomenons, especially because green spaces are less in communities of color. And that's a that's a policy decision that's been played out there's disproportionate impacts of heat on poor communities and communities of color. And so it exacerbates a lot of our health inequities. Now you could go down the list, you know, air pollution's impact on asthma, of course, should be at the top of the list. One of, out of five premature deaths around the world can be associated with exposure to air pollution. Allergy seasons are longer and more severe because of this. So, you know, really, we, you, we've got to be really holistic about this. It really impacts everything I care about as a doctor. And what we're teaching the med students now is to really have this lens of incorporating an understanding of the impacts of climate change on all elements of clinical practice, diagnosis, counseling, treatment plans, et cetera. Are there any, Dr. Pursue, are there any positive aspects around climate change? I know so much of the message is negative, and I think in general, it is a negative thing. Any positive elements that you can think of? There's no way I can frame climate change as positive. I think one thing I'll highlight is that, you know, we, we think of climate change as warming the planet, which is true, but it's making it much more erratic. And as Rachel said, it, it, it brings out the extremes. It brings out these unusual kind of, um, you know, once in a hundred years kind of flood is happening more frequently. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I grew up in California, you know, seeing a hurricane come through California, unusual things are happening. And the reason I can't, you know, there, you can't say it's a positive because like Rachel said, we've built a society and an infrastructure based on what the world looked like in the 1950s and 60s. And so you're seeing things like, you know, flood flooding happen because of the sewage systems, you're seeing schools not being able to tolerate these new heat waves, right? Like we haven't built things capable of, of responding to some of these climate threats. So we, we've got to act really urgently. And let me ask you this, Rachel, just on that note as well, you know, Rhode Island, obviously on the coast, a lot of cities and towns, you know, how is climate change specifically going to affect some of the coastal states, Rhode Island included? I was actually surprised, Dr. Pursue, you mentioned that uh, Rhode Island, New England in general is, is warming faster than the rest of the U.S. Uh, that's surprising. But Rachel, in terms of the coast, what are what do we expect in the future for Rhode Island if climate change continues at this rate? And are we doing anything? Should we be doing anything uh, Rhode Island statewide to to help mitigate the impacts of climate change? Dr. Basu is right about New England being the fastest warming region. And part of that is because of the Gulf of Maine being the fastest warming part of the ocean. And in fact, 93% of the heat that we have put out 
with with our increases in climate change has been absorbed by the ocean. So most of the heat is now in the ocean and the ocean is warming. Um, and we've had this summer people talking about what we're calling marine heat waves. And so the water off of Florida this summer was literally a hundred degrees like a bathtub. And so that is is causing all kinds of challenges for the ocean circulation and, and things that scientists thought they wouldn't be seeing for hundreds of years, they're seeing happening in the oceans now due to that warming. And, and we're in sort of uncharted territory. We don't really know what this means. Um, but for us in New England, it means that our sea levels are also rising faster than anywhere else on um, the country. And so with the fastest rising sea levels, we're looking at uh, sunny day flooding, which which is flooding that happens on a full moon tide without rain and things like that. And so there are very vulnerable communities where we're going to have to start thinking about roads that are inundated and, and sewer lines and water lines and, and things like that. And so people are going to have to start thinking about either hardening the shoreline or relocating and, and things like that. And so if we start hardening the shoreline, we're going to lose access for folks to enjoy the shoreline and things like that. And so there's a lot of changes that are going to happen uh, slowly as well as some of these big events that we're seeing. Um, there's all this, so this sort of creeping change. And at some point, it's going to be too much. Um, so we're going to see more and more floods and things like that. One website that I often peruse is uh, Reddit. Uh, and I read this comment on Reddit the other day from someone in Texas. And the comment was, climate change, it's not supposed to happen here in the US. It's supposed to happen everywhere else in the world. There's a lot of comments we could make about that comment. Dr. Pursuit, talk to us about the global perspective. I think we're seeing some very local effects of climate change, but talk to us about the global perspective. I mean, we're hearing a lot about weather in the news, right? Earthquakes in Morocco and, and floods and lots of different natural disasters. I mean, what is the global impact of climate change? And, you know, from what I can tell, I mean, this is going to really affect some countries and especially some other countries that may not have the same infrastructure and resources that the U.S. does. Well, we're talking while Libya is um, having a, just an extraordinary humanitarian disaster from, from flooding and having dams break, which, which speaks to a lot of what you're saying, uh, Dr. Chan. So it's, you know, we're seeing these dramatic, whether it's, you know, the Canadian wildfires over the summer or uh, extreme flooding. But, you know, we this is about the fundamentals of how we have health, you know, how we have healthy food systems and enough water, you know, the foundations of what we need to have a thriving society are threats that climate change poses, you know? And so globally that it's, it's, I'll tell you this, you know, when I started this work, people are like, you know, you've got to focus on only the local story and make people see it around them. And I understand that we do need to be talking about what people see immediately, but I argue pretty strongly that we've got to feel connected to what's happening all around the world. Because the health inequities, the inequities that you know we've been talking about here are more significant when you talk about the global north and the global south. And the global south has a tiny fraction. The, the G20 just met, you know, the 20 wealthiest countries in the world. And I believe they they have had 80% of the emissions, you know. And um, so you think about these poor communities, these coastal communities, island countries, um, you know countries that can't respond after a major disaster and could really debilitate them for for years, if not decades, we've got to feel connected to that. We've got to feel some moral conviction that 
uh, we're in this together and that because of these inequities and a lot of historical analysis, we can understand that by no fault of their own, people have been put into a situation that is far more threatening, you know, with, with these threats. And so there's big conversations about what it means to finance the global transition, right? To help get solar panels and, you know, transmission lines and all that into the uh, developing world and how we help them adapt because there are things like droughts and famines that are are being impacted against forced migration is when I think a lot about uh, really serious things that are happening around the world that we need to play a role in, you know, creating global solutions. Well, let me ask you on that note, Dr. Basu. I mean, I, you know, I recycle, you know, try to reduce my carbon footprint, but at the individual level, I mean, what can we do? I mean, I feel like so much more of this is really corporate responsibility, like these big companies doing huge business across the world and locally. What are your thoughts on that? And and what can we do as individuals to really address climate change? Yeah, you know, I'll start by saying I, I always think of climate as a structural issue, like you said, a policy issue where governments and, and corporations need to lead. But honestly, recently, I've been feeling more that we do need to bring up this point of how we as individuals step up. And, and honestly, after the Inflation Reduction Act passed a year ago, which creates a lot of subsidies for solar panels and heat pumps and things like that, we now have some tools to incorporate. And again, I want to emphasize that you know, government policy has to make it the easier decision, the more affordable solution so everyone can be a part of this. I think it's really important to feel like you can have your voice heard in this. And that means so many different things. And there's no one right answer here. The number one thing I believe is voting people in who care about climate change and have clarity of how to do climate solutions. But wherever you work, you know, how do you get some clean energy solutions there? You know, if you got kids, what's the school doing? Like everyone can really contribute in their local community in a way that will really matter and will signal to others. There's a famous uh, climate scientist, Catherine Hayhoe. She's like a MacArthur Genius Award winner. And her TED Talk is on just talking about it wherever you can. And so we should stretch ourselves. I would encourage everyone to stretch into little past where they're comfortable, a little uncomfortable. We're all going to have to be a little uncomfortable and stretching and doing things a little more, you know, than we thought we could, you know, thinking about how we eat, thinking about how we move, you know, using public transportation or bikes and things like that. But just engaging, finding a, a community or a group that you could be a part of, that's a part of like something you really care about, are all ways to be a part of like something bigger than yourself, you know, and have your voice heard. Less driving, more walking. Seems like you can kill a couple birds with a single yep. stone there, <laughs> for sure. Wonderful. Thank you again both for joining us. We are winding down a little bit here. I do want to give you both a couple final seconds here to chime in with any final thoughts. Rachel, we'll start with you. And maybe one last question that I have, and I think the million-dollar question, and Dr. Bitsu, feel free to comment on this as well, is, is it too late? Is it too late? You know, I've been hearing about these different thresholds that we've been crossing, et cetera, et cetera, in the news. But you know, are we past the point of no return? Is there a point of no return? And anything else you want to add to the conversation? Rachel, what are your thoughts? Yeah, we don't we don't really know what that what the feedback loops are, are gonna be doing, but it's not too late. It's never too late to 
work towards a solution here. And I think the nice thing about talking about public health is that when we bring public health into the conversation, all of the solutions that we are talking about, many, most of them have a public health component. And so as we mitigate climate change, we're also supporting public health. And so emissions of diesel, uh, particulates, toxins, things like that, they have both the effect of reducing greenhouse gases, but also increasing our our health. And so at the Department of Environmental Management, we have grants for people to plant trees. Um, We work on our our forest health because we know that forests are a very important part of sequestering carbon. We work on uh, sustainable agriculture and food. We have a a state food policy. So we're trying to integrate um, sustainability into all of the things that we do. And when you're talking about climate change, and I agree, we all need to discuss this within our communities. We really can also just talk about all of these things without even mentioning climate change, but just mention local food, sustainable food, trees, and urban green spaces, and bike paths, and things like that. These are all things that we can support and champion, and it will make our communities more healthy. Thank you. Dr. Bersu, any final words for us? You know, we're living in this extraordinary time where we see the impacts of climate more than ever. And I do want to emphasize that we are also in this era of never before climate solutions being unlocked. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act last year promises to decrease our emissions by 40 percent by 2030. And, and our commitment and, you know, the, the abiding by the Paris Agreement is to decrease our emissions by 50%. So one bill got us, you know, a really long way. And there's a lot of things that have to happen, don't get me wrong. But we, like electric vehicles are exploding. Solar never, no one ever thought solar could be as cheap as it is right now. It's exploding. We have the tools. It's really important that for everyone who's listening to this, to know that we are in a really you know, hard fight here. The path is clear. We have everything we need. And so we have got to bring ourselves together and have shared values. And for me, I think it's the health and safety of our children is the thing that we could all come together for. We have to commit to science and we have to say it, these transitions are hard. Um, the world has gone through a lot of hard challenges throughout, you know, my thinking about my family and and my ancestors and around the world, people have gone through hard times and this climate will cause some challenge, but we have to feel up to the challenge and know that we can do this. And and I I actually feel we can. A big thank you to our guests today, Rachel Calabro and Dr. Garab Basu. Thank you both for taking the time to share your expertise with us. It's appreciated. In closing, I do want to thank Erica Collins, our executive producer, and Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Philip Chan, signing off on behalf of the Rhode Island Department of Health. Thank you all, and be well.